This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Sociology podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Celine Marie Pascal, author of the book, Living on the Edge, When Hard Times Become a Way of Life. How are you doing today? Hi, Deidre. Thank you so much for having me. Great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in the project. Sure. Um, I grew up in a family that struggled economically, and it took me a long time in life to get to a place of economic stability. Um, I'm a university professor. I'm toward the end of my career, and I was thinking, you know, what, what is it really like in communities that are struggling today? And I wanted to visit places around the country that I knew had entrenched levels of economic hardship that had been there for decades. So I began with a very simple task of wanting to know what life was like for people who live in precarious economic situations. But when I started to research it, I, you know, as, as we know as sociologists, that inequality is a nexus of power. And it was soon really clear that there was a lot more to explore here than just people's daily lives. And I began to look also at the social relations that shaped those lives, loans, medical care, um, access to housing, all of the various infrastructure that deeply affects our quality of life. So the book, um, the book now it kind of turned out to showcase not just people's lives, but also the ways in which government and businesses have worked together to their own gain and to the disadvantage of uh, workers. What were some of the interesting places you travel for your research? Oh, I know I was so interested in these places. I went through Appalachia from Ohio, West Virginia, down to Tennessee and Kentucky. I went to Wind River Reservation, Reservation, and to Oakland, California. What was the bleakest place you traveled to? Bleakest in which sense? Social economically and people just without hope. Mm, I think it's almost impossible to live without some form of hope especially for people who have children. We want to believe that better times are coming and we work toward that end, regardless of how realistic that is. So um, in terms of economics, 
I think that, um, you know, it manifests differently in different places. One of the things that really struck me as the most bleak was when people were isolated, when they had no uh, place for social interaction. And in that sense, um, uh, I think about Oakland with, it has this wonderful Lake Merritt where people could go and be outside. Usually struggling communities, and Oakland isn't entirely a struggling community. It has neighborhoods that are very wealthy, but in places like Appalachia or on reservations where there is a high level of economic need, there's often a real lack of access to uh, social places. There aren't parks and libraries and recreational opportunities. And so people's lives are constrained by um, what's not there. And in that sense, I think the lack of opportunity uh, for connection and socializing felt most bleak to me. Tell the audience about the low-wage worker and the shortage of housing and how that went hand in hand. Mm, that's a great question, Deidre. I think that um, we've had stagnant wages for about, you know, I don't know how many decades, but a lot of decades. Meanwhile, the cost of rent is rising there's no effective rent control. Um, HUD defines affordable housing as being no more than 30% of your salary. And I think that you and I as faculty know that we don't even pay 30% of our income on housing, right? So most people really struggle with housing. It's just we lack affordable housing in the country. But unlike uh, low-wage workers, we have more options, more flexibility in our income. And when I'm, so for instance, um, Michael in Southeast Ohio is a man who identified himself as being black. He worked two jobs, both of them, both of those jobs kept him just below full time because employers then don't have to pay benefits. Neither job would guarantee him any number of hours. So he was always jumping to accept whatever they offered him, which meant some weeks he worked, you know, back to back eight hours shifts and other weeks he had no work at all. It really mm, placed him in a precarious situation. He, even with these two jobs that were mm, a little over 30 hours of week, a week, ideally, but not consistently, he needed roommates. And he is a pretty shy person. I don't think that roommates were really his thing, living with people he didn't know, but you know, he took them on to, to make that work. He eventually left those jobs and went to school for training to get certification as a health aide. He achieved three levels of certification, went back to live with his parents so that he could afford to do that and then came out with a job that paid $10 an hour. So still not a living wage. And that's the difficulty is that for people who are low wage workers, you can't work yourself out of poverty because you'll never make enough to pay the rents that are so exceptionally high. You met some people on the reservation also, but you also went to Athens, Ohio. Tell us about that visit. Athens, Ohio was kind of a, it was a very interesting county. I, 
I wanted to go there because I knew that it had um, a lot of poverty. Um, and it was, it's, it also is home to two colleges, the um, University of Ohio at Athens and Hawkins College up in Nelsonville. So it was interesting to see that um, the dynamics of those educational institutions really shaping um, the lives of locals. So local people, the housing market became even more extreme because many landlords prefer to rent to college students where they can rent one house by the bedroom instead of as an entire house. That forced up the cost of living for local people who didn't have the kind of flexibility that would allow them to pay such high rents for a house. It also meant that uh, the town of Athens had, I don't remember exactly, but something like 30 bars in a two block area. It was a real, uh, drinking was, drinking and drugs were the primary recreations there. There weren't a lot of movie theaters or other opportunities for recreation. That combined with it being an open carry state made it a little unnerving for me to, <laughs> to see people wandering in and out of bars with guns. But, um, you know, it's part of acclimatizing to a new environment for me. It was different for me. So I tried to learn from the people who were there what it was like to live with that. I think you talked a little about Oakland, but I, I just see that as such a very interesting place because the rent for some people is just 3000 Did you find a lot of homeless people there? Oh, gosh, yes. You know, um, we're... We're accustomed as a nation, I think, accustomed to thinking about homelessness as something that happens to us when we can no longer work, that we're unemployed for some reason, and so we become unhoused. But today, many people who are unhoused are working, and the movement of workers from the tech industry in San Francisco over into Oakland has devastated the rental market for locals again. So you have people who are um, in the same jobs they've always been in or people, you know, who, who have fairly good jobs, but they are now forced into precarity because they can't afford the rents. You know, you talked about the poverty line for a family of four and, you know, you gave us some um, monthly cost. What would you say that we need to do concerning that poverty line level for a family of four? Is it does it need to be higher, lower? What did you find from your research? Oh, gosh. Um, thank you for that question. I think the poverty line is so far detached from reality that it isn't effective in any way. There are, so let me give you some examples. Um, for a family who's struggling, for a family who meets the poverty line, they've reached economic struggle long before they ever come close to the poverty line. For a single person, I think it's about $12,000 a year. So, you know, we're looking at college tuition, maybe, maybe less than college tuition for a lot of families. So if you think about what you could do with $12,000 a year in terms of rent, uh, utilities, food, you get a sense of how utterly unrealistic that is. 
if you look at what you actually need to live, and here I think the Economic Policy Institute has a fantastic website with a budget calculator that allows you to figure out wherever you are in the country, how much money you need to be able to reliably pay all of your bills every month. And I think that, you know, because the poverty line is the same anywhere, you know, it's $12,000 for an individual in San Francisco, and it's $12,000 for uh, an individual in Athens, Ohio. So it's just not flexible enough. The Economic Policy Institute budget calculator allows for all of those distinctions, and it gives us a much more realistic expectation of where it is that economic struggle really begins to hit for families. And we know there's a lot of stress involved with poverty. Um, did you find that a lot of the people were going to the payday loans and getting you know, money to just tie them over in the cycle of the payday loans? You know, if we think about, uh, you know, we've just come by Halloween and all the people put up, you know, the scary images. I think there's probably nothing more terrifying than payday loans for uh, low wage workers. If you can't make your budget on the fixed wages that you're earning, when you take out one of these loans, there's no way you'll be able to repay it, plus the interest and fees in the two-week period that they allot. Even if it's a little bit longer than that in some areas, you just don't, you don't have it. That's why you're borrowing it. So low payday loans offer really high interest rates, um, short repayment terms, and enable in most states, in some states, you can turn, roll them over, take out one more loan to pay that loan into perpetuity. Texas is one of those. In other states, you can only roll over four times, but you get into so much debt that it's impossible to pay it back. And there is a, you would think, how, how in the world is that profitable, you know, to make loans that people can't pay? There was a woman at Standing Rock who had taken out um, a payday loan thinking, you know, that she was employed and that at the next paycheck, she'd be able to pay that back. But she lost her job before that next time came around. She wasn't able to pay it back. They took her to court and the court offers her two options. They can seize her property or they can garnish her future wages. Well, for a low wage worker, property generally amounts to a vehicle and you can't work unless you have a vehicle. So Ellison, the woman at Standing Rock was really happy that they were gonna garnish her wages instead of take her car. So she started to work and bef there before she gets her paycheck, the loan company is getting the payments from her. So those low wage workers are now working for even less. And it becomes this cycle that is like quicksand that other, everybody else is making money except Ellison. You know, you went to Eastern Kentucky and you talked with Gina Terry. She was a service um, industry worker. Yes. And tell us about the fact that she had no health insurance no retirement, no sick leave, and how she was managing that situation. Oh, gosh, you know, I, 
the, the very few people that I met that had those, most of the people I talked to did not have healthcare, sick leave, vacation time, retirement. Uh, Low-wage workers tend not to have that part of a, an employment package. So she had, um, she was someone who was born addicted to crack in Eastern Kentucky, and the medical people there didn't identify the problem for some time. So her parents, you know, were, um, again, another story of tremendous stress that her parents went through. They sorted that out. And Jenna went through kind of like, like kids do in high school, started to experiment with drugs, thinking, you know, that would be interesting. It's so much boredom. It's hard to imagine how much boredom poverty generates. She um, escaped. She had kind of tempted fate there, escaped. But at one point, she fell off of a porch at a friend's house and broke her back. The doctor prescribed opioids for her. Now, before she ever ran out of her prescription, she was addicted to those opioids. And that set her down a path that was a catastrophic for her. Now, you know, in, in struggling communities, when you go to a doctor, they don't say, oh, go get acupuncture or physical therapy or, right? It's like, here's a bottle of pills that will help. It's the, the only thing that they offer most of the time. So there is kind of a setup right away for people. And you see this um, with uh, people who do coal mining or any kind of physical factory work that you have problems with your body always. And the solution to that in the medical industry is a bottle of pills. And the opioid epidemic has been catastrophic for Appalachia. You know, you even talked about the informal economy being everywhere where people were doing all sorts of things in order to get money. You talked about this one case of a a young man who uh, was skimming cards at the gas station, you know, just all sorts of informal street corner, informal economies. Can Mm -hmm. you elaborate on that a little bit more? Oh, um, Deidre, I think I was afraid that my card was going to get skimmed. I was in Oakland um, in a neighborhood that uh, is known as the Deep East. And all around that station, that gas station, there were um, signs of of an informal economy, signs of drug dealing. Um, At the station itself, you know, uh, bulletproof glass, systems of, you know, just buying gas, seemed like a cultural, a new cultural experience because it was so different than what I experienced in the DC area. But people, you know, do their best to get by. And when these businesses come in, and I'm experiencing this even in my own home community now that businesses draw elements in that make it really unsafe for the families who are living there. One of the things that happened in the Deep East in Oakland is that people outside of that began to identify it not as a community where families are, but as an area. And when you call something an area, you automatically distanced it from, you know, nobody lives in an area. It became immediately dangerous. And I think keeping uh, the families and children in sight, in view, is really important when we talk about 
so-called areas that are dangerous. Now, when we look at all of this that's going on, one of the great things I, I liked about your book, you travel to many diverse places and you made the reader realize that poverty is everywhere. It has no racial designation. And so I think that was a really great aspect of your book. Would you like to elaborate on that a little? Thank you so much. Um, um, you know, I, I really appreciate that. I think it's important for us to recognize that poverty, poverty is a structural condition that's being generated by the kind of economy and the kind of political environment that we have. And it affects everyone. Now, people in, if you play a game of musical chairs, there's not enough, say you have 10 people in nine chairs, the music goes, you run around, you try to stop, right? And there's always going to be someone who doesn't have a chair. Now you might say it's going to be the slowest person or the, the kindest person, or you can think of all the different qualities, but that person doesn't get a chair. The fact is the system is rigged so that everyone can't have a chair. And until we can call that out, it's easy to look and blame those, those people that didn't get the chair as something wrong with them. But in fact, they're just more likely to struggle in, in the system that's already rigged against them. The last chapter, you gave us some solutions. Tell us something about what do you see as some solutions to poverty? Oh, well, um, there are the solutions that the people I interviewed talked about. Some of them were often, some of them were more radical than I would have chosen for myself, for my own vision, but I thought there was tremendous value in them. And it often surprised me when I was talking with Jack Rockwell and he was thinking about what he wanted for a better future. And he said, well, grocery stores, we really need grocery stores. The next place he went was a universal basic income. And I almost fell off my chair because I didn't, I just didn't see that coming. He was thinking about how when a community doesn't, people don't have money in their pocket. They can't support businesses. They can't, they, the whole community suffers when there isn't any disposable income. From my, from my own perspective, I think that we too often mistake generosity for justice, right? We, we need a system where people no longer feel a moral duty to help other people, but instead have a moral, feel a moral obligation to ensure that everyone has access to a self-sufficient life. And to get there, that requires, my mind, requires both uh, political and economic change that begins with a reckoning in the world. Some people have told me that this book is kind of hard to read because there's suffering in it. But I think that um, we have to begin with reckoning and realizing what is there, how people are living, the economic devastation that's being created, the environmental pollution that people are struggling with, it's extraordinary. We see even now when Congress is unable to pass a voting rights bill, that our politicians are not working for us. Everyone is attached to something. Some, in order to get there, you have to have the backing of some kind of corporation. 
So I think that um, really what we need for any of this to change is a real representational democracy where you have one person, one vote. You get rid of the electoral college that's always um, distorting the election results to have elections that are publicly funded so that anyone who wants to run can run, that we're no longer beholden to big money. I think we have to get that big money out of elections, out of uh, politics. And that would help to give us more free and fair elections. So if we get rid of gerrymandering and get the money out of politics, I think we're going to have a good shot at making the kinds of change that we need. Right now, you look at Joe Manchin, who is not voting along the lines of the people who elected him. People in West Virginia want to have the Build Back Better Act. They want to have climate protections. They want to have access to affordable childcare, healthcare. But Manchin is uh, funded by the coal industry. His son owns a coal mine. They're not going to give that up for the people of West Virginia, which is really tragic. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. Can you tell us, what are you working on next? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) uh, It's been so much for me to get this out. I can't say that I have a concrete, here's what next, but I do have a couple of more, maybe two, three more books in me. Um, And I have some rough ideas, but I'll have to leave that for another time. Thank you so much. Thank you.